Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 32 is our text for this morning. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 32. And I've entitled our message this morning, The Power of the Kingdom. The Power of the Kingdom. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 says this. And Jesus was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. I'll just read verses 33 and 34. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. This is the word of God. The famous um, evangelist and preacher and pastor, D.L. Moody, had a profound impact upon the world in the hands of Almighty God for the progress of the gospel. And he once asked a random man on the street, D.L. Moody, he says to this man, Sir, are you a Christian? With a puzzled and annoyed sort of look, the man answered, You mind your own business. To which D.L. Moody replied, Sir, this is my business. This is my business. And boy, did it show during the lifetime of D.L. Moody. He was a man who preached and shared the gospel with anything that moved. If the thing moved, he preached the gospel to it. Right? And that is really the way that we ought to be in this life. Amen? We ought to be people who recognize, like D.L. Moody, that we are on a mission on this earth to make disciples. That the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of sinners, the reconciliation of sinners to Almighty God, to their Creator by faith in Jesus Christ, is our business. It is the reason why we are here, to make disciples. And it's not just D.L. Moody who should live his life, even though he was a officially a pastor and a preacher and evangelist. It's not just D.L. Moody, beloved, who should be that resolute on evangelizing and making disciples. Every Christian, every single one of us who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ are on mission. We are here to make disciples. And this is the point that Jesus has just made to his disciples in last week's passage, Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. That they are to glow for Christ as they continue to grow in Christ in a dark world that desperately needs to hear about Jesus Christ being Savior, being Lord. That in Him can people be forgiven of their sins. From the very beginning, Jesus in the Gospels, we see in His public ministry that He made it clear to His disciples that they were to be sharing the Gospel following His example. And you know what? They did that, didn't they? They went out and they followed His example and they proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. 
They did not live a sort of privatized Christianity. Jesus, from the very get-go, made it very clear to these disciples that they were not to live an isolated sort of private Christianity. They were to, while their, their Christianity was first and foremost personal, it was to be public in that they were to be a, a testimony to the lost world around them. And they followed the Lord's example. And beloved, we're learning that this is true for us as well. That we should be very careful, even in our own wonderful country with all of the wonderful liberties that we have that we should give thanks for, that we do not live in our country as Christians who have so many freedoms, at least for now, in a sort of privatized kind of way. Living in a way where we just keep our faith to ourselves. Where we live like islands, we function that way. Simply protecting ourselves as if the four walls of our home... As long as we kept ourselves within those four walls, we are okay. And we forget about the fact that first and foremost, the battle is in our very hearts, isn't it? That we are sinners in our own hearts. And not only that, but that we are here on mission. We are here on mission to fulfill the great commission of making disciples. And I know none of us would get up and cry out outrage at me saying this. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's challenging for us. Because I believe that most of us, it's, it's not that we don't want to share Christ with people. It's not that we don't want to invest ourselves into the lives of others. It's not that, that we don't want souls to be one for Christ. It's that perhaps we struggle with how to do it. With how to do it. How do we broach the topic of the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who we hardly even know? let alone even in a harder sense with people that we do know in our extended family or friends or neighbors or coworkers or whatever. Perhaps some of us feel very ill-equipped, very inadequate for the task of sharing the gospel. But even more, perhaps this morning you are here and you're discouraged because you've shared your faith, you're diligent to do that, you you use every means possible to share the gospel with people, you seek to establish relationships, but you see very little fruit very little fruit too many times maybe you've shared and you've experienced that people who you've shared the gospel with or people who be trying to live christ before resemble more than anything else the first three soils in the parable of the sower and the soils the hardened heart the superficial heart or a divided heart most of the people that you minister to perhaps manifest those kinds of hearts rather than the soft, tender soil that embraces Christ, that loves Christ, that wants to serve Christ for the rest of their lives. Maybe we've been tempted or we are discouraged. Maybe you've lost heart and think that your efforts are in vain. And I want to encourage us from this passage this morning because I think that that this is why, part of the reason why Jesus taught the two parables that we're going to look at this morning in verses 26 through 32. Because Jesus, beloved, knew that his disciples, whom he would commission to be disciple makers, would experience rejection. He knew that they would, and they did. After all, he himself had been rejected already. Two years, close to two years into his ministry here in Mark chapter 4. Rejection and opposition. Narrow is the way, right? Few are following after Jesus. 
Many are opposed to him. And soon, in about a year to a year and a half from this particular passage here, Jesus is going to be ultimately rejected at the cross by his own people, the Jewish leaders and the the Jewish nationals. They're going to reject him. And so he needed to remind his disciples of the nature of his kingdom, of the power of the kingdom of God. Because there would come a day when their labors would seem vain, where it seemed as if no one wanted to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ upon Jesus' death on the cross. And I believe that so many of us need encouragement this morning. So many of us are experiencing hostility, opposition in various circles of influence that we might have. We're seeing the culture around us here in America and how anti-God things are and these legislations that are potentially going to be passing in the years ahead. There's so much opposition to the gospel. There's so much opposition to the word of God. And we might be tempted, beloved, to think that the gospel is powerless and there's nothing that we are able to do here on this earth. Anybody feeling a little discouraged? Admit it. It's a difficult time. But God is in control, isn't He? And these are parables that reminded His disciples and would remind them even as they look back post-Jesus' ascension of the fact that they needed to not lose heart. And these are parables, beloved, that I think we can learn so much from as well. These parables point to the fact that the kingdom is advancing in ways that we don't even fathom, that we don't even visibly know and are aware of, but it is advancing And so we're reminded in these parables that our labors, if we are faithfully fulfilling our mission here on this earth, beloved, with a clear conscience before God, our labors are not in vain, and we should not lose heart in our mission of making disciples. And so from these two parables this morning, I want to remind you of two very basic but profound truths so that you and I might be resolved in our mission to make disciples and not lose heart. Now, please remember, making disciples involves more than just conversions, right? It involves more than just sharing the gospel with somebody so that there's a new birth. It also involves ongoing edification, building up of that particular person in Christ. So making disciples involves both evangelism and edification. It involves cultivating intentional relationships with other Christians for the purpose of helping one another become like Jesus. That is what discipleship is. It involves intentional relationships with other Christians for the purpose of helping one another become like Jesus. That happens formally. That can happen also informally. So think about that. Here are two basic but profound truths that you and I might not lose heart in our mission of making disciples of evangelism and edification. And the first basic but profound truth is this in verses 26 through 29. You and I must trust in God's sovereign work. You and I must trust in God's sovereign work. And I know none of us, again, would cry outrage when we hear that. It is a known reality. We know this as Calvary members here over the years, that God is sovereign. But it is amazing that though we might give lip service to the sovereignty of God, that God works in the hearts of people and that we must trust Him, it is amazing how much we get angry, we get anxious, we get frustrated, we resort to manipulation tactics 
to try to somehow generate change and growth in the lives of other people, maybe our spouse, maybe our kids, maybe our neighbors, maybe one another. And that reveals that we really aren't functionally, in the way that we live, trusting in the sovereignty of God. And so may I remind us this morning, beloved, God is sovereign over His kingdom and we must trust Him. Now, what does the sovereignty of God mean? Here's the sovereignty of God. This is what it means. God has supreme authority and all things in His creation are under His control. Do you hear that? God has supreme authority over all and every aspect of His creation, big or small, is under His control. Listen to R.C. Sproul, who writes this about the sovereignty of God. Quote, If there is any element of the universe that is outside of God's authority, then he has no longer, then he no longer is God over all. In other words, sovereignty belongs to deity. Sovereignty is a natural attribute of God the Creator. God owns what he makes, and he rules what he owns. I love that. God owns what he makes, and he rules what he owns. God is sovereign over His kingdom. And so we need to trust Him, beloved. We need to trust Him. Now notice how our Lord reminds His hearers here, His multitudes listening to Him, and especially His disciples, with whom, according to verses 33 and 34, He's explaining the parables specifically to them. Notice how our Lord reminds His hearers of God's sovereign work here in verses 26 through 29. Look at verse 26. And He was saying... The kingdom of God is like or is compared to a man who casts seed upon the soil. Jesus is still using the imagery of agriculture or farming that they would have understood. This was imagery that was very familiar to them as he's preaching. All they needed to do is look out and from a distance they could probably see farmers out doing this exact thing. Casting or scattering seed upon soil. It was very familiar to them. And so here's this farmer as we saw in the parable of the sower and the soils, who indiscriminately is scattering seed upon the soil. And as we've been told in the parable of the soil, some seed would fall beside the road, some on the rocky places, some among the thorns, but some on good soil, right? The soil that bears fruit. And in this case, it's evident that the seed falls on good soil because we're told, if you notice verse 27, that the farmer goes to bed at night and he gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. Please note, this farmer simply does his basic job. He simply does his job. He scatters seed, but then he's not stressing out. He's not anxious. He doesn't stress out about anything else. He simply does what he is required to do, right? Trust that there's going to be fruit. He goes inside of his house, gets under his nice warm covers, and gets a good night's sleep. Just another day in the office, right? Doing what he does. Ever have that sense of of peace after after a hard day of work? Just like, you know what? I don't have control over any of these other things. I'm just going to do my job and I'm going to go home, take care of my family, and I'm just going to get a good night's sleep. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own, right? The mentality of this guy right here. Now, the next day he gets up, notice, in verse 27, he gets up by day, that is, at the, at the crack of dawn, early in the morning, and 
Lo and behold, the seed sprouts and grows. After a good night's sleep, the seed has sprouted, it's germinated. Notice that there's, there's visible development and growth. But here's the Lord's main point in verse 27. How this happened, he himself does not know. He himself does not know. What is this saying here? This is not saying that this is, a, this, this is an ignorant farmer who didn't know about the potential for growth. Otherwise, he wouldn't have scattered seed, right? What it's saying is that this farmer had no control over the organic growth of that seed. It's out of his direct and ultimate control. It's out of his hands. He doesn't know all of the inner workings under the surface of the ground and all of that. He can't manipulate the sprouting of seed deep underground. He has no control ultimately. He simply does his job, scatters seed, trusting that if he is faithful to doing his job, there is going to be fruit, there is going to be a harvest, and there is, right? Look at verse 28. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. You see that little phrase in verse 28, translated by itself? See that? I think it's in all translations. There's a beautiful word in the Greek which translates that little phrase by itself. It's the Greek word automate. Automate. Sound familiar? Automatic. We get our English word automatic translated there in verse 28 by itself. By itself. Automatically. In other words, the seed, beloved, listen, independent of the farmer or the sower, automatically energizes, gives life, produces growth. Automatically. It develops without external manipulation or stimulation by the farmer. Within itself, the seed contains the DNA or the power to generate growth and fruitfulness. Amazing. What in the world is our Lord Jesus talking about here? Well, he's not talking about just good farming, is he? He just wants a good lesson on good agriculture, on good farming. No, he would have been more expansive about that, right? From our context, we know that he's talking about the work of the word of God taking root in the heart of a person. That's what he's talking about here. Good, fertile soil receiving the word. That the seed of the gospel, the seed of the word of God, has the power to bring about the fruit of saving faith and ongoing fruit in the life of a born-again Christian. None of us are able to do that. None of us are. Only the word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God is able to do that. The word of God, which contains the gospel, is powerful to change the heart of a person so that their spiritual harvest. The word word of God alone This is what our Lord describes in verse 29, using farming terminology. Notice verse 29, but when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Here's the faithful farmer now reaping the the blessing of a harvest, even though ultimately the point of the parable is he, it was not his doing. He simply did the basic task of scattering seed and he left the results to that soil, right in the hands of God. In the hands of God. Oh, beloved, God is sovereign, isn't He? He's sovereign over the hearts of men and women on this earth. He's sovereign 
to do his work of redemption in the heart of what, whoever that sinner that you have in mind in whatever context of life you are in, who you think that they're way beyond the, the reach of the grace of God. They are not. God is more than able to shatter that hardened heart. Keep at it. Keep praying. Keep being faithful to proclaiming the gospel to those individuals. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. We are simply called to be faithful. I want you to see how Paul makes the same point that the Lord is making about who produces the growth. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I love this text. 1 Corinthians 3. There were those in... There were some wonderful teachers at the church in Corinth. But as is typical with any of us as Christians, people began getting competitive heralding one preacher or pastor above another. One of those was Peter, another Apollos, another Paul. Even Jesus was one of the options. Even Jesus was one of the options. So Paul wants to see Christ exalted. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Underline that in your Bibles. God was causing the growth. God is responsible sovereignly in the heart of a person to bring about that person's to arise from spiritual death and to continue to grow in sanctification. God is causing the growth. So what's the implication? Verse 7, So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is, say it with me, anything but God who causes the growth. In other words, this is God's field where God's building. God is the one who gets the glory because God is the one who's energizing growth in the life of a person, of a disciple, of a follower of Christ. God does this. And Paul nails it, doesn't he? Stop boasting in men. They're just, we're just trying to be faithful. And we have been given a role or a responsibility. And that is to simply dispense the gospel, dispense the word of truth. But God gets the glory because God is the one who does the work in that human heart. Well, beloved, this should encourage us. This should comfort us. You know, the sovereignty of God used to be a, a doctrine that I would stumble over as a, as, a, as a non-believer. I would stumble over that. How could it be that God is ultimately in control? But you know what the, what the other side to it is? If we don't have a God who is absolutely sovereign and in control over everything, then He is a weak God, and I cannot worship a God who maybe, down the line, even loses my salvation. And He cannot protect me from my own sin. The God of the Bible is a God who is sovereign over it all. And so why are we anxious? Why do we resort to anger towards our spouses? Because they're not measuring up to our standards of sanctification. Why are we hard on our children? 
Why are we not gracious towards non-believers out in society? Why are we impatient as if it was up to us and they're not listening to me? And so we get angry and we're frustrated at the way the culture is headed. So anti-God, beloved, listen to me. Be faithful and trust and leave the results to God. Leave the results to Him. The power is in the gospel of God, isn't it? Go with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want you to see this. Oh, Paul, love these Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2, he gives thanks for them. We give thanks to God always for all of you. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Notice, they are laboring. They are faithfully working verse 3 they are steadfast in their hope and paul is saying we're so i'm so grateful for you but what did the work in the hearts of these thessalonians look at verse 5 for our gospel the gospel is the good news concerning the person and the work of jesus christ right that there is salvation in no one else only in jesus and jesus alone if you trust in him you can be forgiven of your sins reconciled to your maker that gospel paul and his companions went and preached to the thessalonians that gospel changed their hearts verse 5 our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the holy spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Listen to this. Having received or embraced as the fourth soil in the parable of the soils, right? That embraces the truth, that believes in Christ. The Thessalonians have received the word, verse 6, in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And it's bearing fruit in their lives. Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. And notice how they they responded to the word of God. How you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the one to come. Oh, Paul is saying, man, the gospel that we delivered to you has done an amazing work in your lives. You've turned from idols. You're not worshiping the true God. You're bearing fruit. You're walking in faith and in hope and in love that is leading to service and sacrifice, even in the face of opposition and suffering. Because these Thessalonians were persecuted because of the response to the gospel. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Is that your attitude, beloved? That Sunday mornings when you come in to hear the message of the word of God through singing, the reading of Scripture, when other brethren speak the truth to you in the context of relationships, and especially the main event when the Word of God is preached by any man up here, 
Do you have this attitude, according to 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that you accept these words, not as the words of men, but what, for what it really, really are, the word of God, which has its ability, the ability to perform its work in you who believe, who embrace the truth, who apply it. Is that your attitude? Well, the Thessalonians were humble and teachable. But the instrument, market, the instrument that God sovereignly uses are broken vessels like you and I who deliver the gospel message and deliver the word of God, right? So, let me tell you this. God is sovereign. Absolutely. Amen. Preach it all over scripture. But any view of God's sovereignty that chucks human responsibility as far as you and I as Christians obeying the Great Commission and making disciples is an inaccurate and unhealthy view of the sovereignty of God. Did you hear that? Why in the world would Jesus, who absolutely would affirm the sovereignty, his sovereignty, right? Why would he give his disciples in the book of Acts the challenge and the commission to go and make disciples, i.e. putting the responsibility on them to be the means by which he brings and advances his kingdom? Why would he do that? Because they have a role to play here, right? Just as Paul and his companions in in the church at Thessalonica, preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God. Beloved, we are called to be faithful. We have a role and a responsibility to play in all of this. God is sovereign, but he works through his word. Now go back to Mark chapter 4. This farmer, again, What's he do? Simply scatters, plants the seed, goes to bed, rests peacefully, and reaps a harvest in the morning. But this is a harvest that was brought about by the seed of the word, right? And the parallel is quite clear for us. Quite clear for us. We are to be doing the same, beloved. We are to trust in the sovereignty of God who works in the hearts of people so that God gets the glory. But remember that we have a role to play, and our role is to share the message of Christ to share and to preach and to dispense the word of truth in love and with compassion to a a non-believing world that desperately needs hope. We're living in dark ages, beloved. So we need to be those who who are sharing Christ with people, who are growing in Christ and glowing for Christ as we saw last week, right? That should be us. Oh, too many churches are forgetting about the importance of the word of God which our sovereign God uses. Too many churches in America bind into the latest church growth strategies, adopting the the latest gimmicks to grow their churches. I read a couple of articles this week about the growth of skits and theatrical acts on the platform in church buildings and warehouse types of churches now because that's the only thing that's going to attract the crowd for people. Listen to me. How you win them is how you're going to keep them. Right? If you're winning them by gimmicks and show and all of that, that's how you're going to keep people. And as soon as you stop doing the dog and pony show on the platform, then people are gone because there is no redemption in the human heart, beloved. God is sovereign through his word, by his spirit, using his people in the hearts of people to draw them to himself. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need the latest fads, do we? Absolutely not. Do we trust him and his means His word and his church and the power of the spirit of God to change the hearts of our family members and neighbors and extended family. Do we trust in those things, beloved? Or are we succumbing to the culture around us 
that no, it's not about preaching the gospel, that people don't want to hear long expositions anymore of 40 or 50 minutes. We need to go do devotionals from the pulpit now. We need to do little sermonettes for Christianettes. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, right? That's a lot of what many churches are doing, beloved. An hour of music, nothing against music, especially the way that our men lead it from up here. But people, we're being told today, don't have the capacity anymore, this new generation, to hear not even 30 minutes of a message of hard preaching that preaches to their hearts. No, don't do that anymore. The new generation needs more visuals, more graphics, more theatrical acts. The preaching of the Word of God doesn't do its work anymore. We, it's a new culture. It's a new age. Let's expand our horizons. Please. Please. Should we seize upon visuals? Should we seize upon the wonderful technology to, to spread and herald the Word all over the country and all over the world? Absolutely. And I'm so thankful for a body and individuals here in this church who are about that, about using and leveraging our technology here in this culture and this world to preach the Word and to send the Word all over the world. I love that. But that's not what we put our trust in. That's not what we put our dependence upon. We put our trust in a sovereign God who uses his word, uses his church in the power of the spirit to draw sinners to himself. Amen. That's what we're about. Oh, Paul believed this. He said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the, say with me, of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, i.e. the world. There's no one who is exempt. We need to preach to any moving thing on the, in this world. Be faithful to that. Trusting in our sovereign God and in the results being left in His hands. Oh, Paul believed that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross, beloved, may sound foolish and shameful to the non-believer, but it has the power to save that very wretched, unbelieving sinner, such as you and I. Isn't that our story as we sit in this room? Look around. Nice people, <laughs> right? My goodness. Former liars, deceivers, adulterers, fornicators, murderers. Violent aggressors, prisoners of satanic domination. How many of us have not fallen into one and many of those other categories? Self-righteous who trusted in their works. Some of us from our past before Christ, before we came to know and believe that only in Jesus alone can there be forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God. All the the categories of sins that we were in are, are abounding, aren't they? What has made the difference? The power of the gospel of God. He makes the difference. Our sovereign God using his word in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners. But we need to trust in our sovereign God, beloved. As we fulfill our mission on this earth, he works through the gospel and his word and continues to do so in us who are following Jesus Christ. It's so humbling, isn't it? It's not up to us, beloved, ultimately. It's not up to you to bring about the change in that person. It's not up to me from the pulpit to make you obey the Word of God. 
I'm simply seeking to be faithful and bring the truth to bear upon your life every Sunday or during the week. Our elders from house to house, in our meetings, whatever, bring the truth to bear. But it is you who needs to apply the word of God to your life so that there is sanctification, so that you grow to be more like Jesus, right? Ultimately, it's God who does the work. You and I just need to be faithful. So we must trust in the work of our sovereign God using his word and in the power of the Spirit. Secondly, secondly, second comforting truth or profound but basic truth is this. Not only must we trust in the work of our sovereign God, but secondly, take comfort in the advance or growth of the kingdom. Take comfort in the growth of the kingdom. Do you know that at this very moment in the hearts of many of you, I wish that it was every single one of you, the the kingdom of God is advancing? How so? You're hearing the word of God and the spirit of God is working in your heart and you're coming to see God's sovereignty and his majesty that he's in control of everything. So your view of God is rising so that you want to worship him and you want to be more resolved to be on mission. The kingdom of God is advancing in your heart right now. Did you know that there are sinners who are coming to faith this morning? Not only in our country, but all over the world. Beloved, as we are here in this worship service, take comfort in this. The kingdom of God is advancing even as I preach the word of God to you. Not only in our country, but all over the world. Jesus' disciples needed to hear this. They would need to remember this parable in the future. Because you know what? They're going to experience rejection. And worse... They would see their beloved Lord crucified on a shameful cross in the future, in about a year and a half from this point. And so the Lord gives a parable here in verses 30 to 32 to remind them of the powerful influence of the kingdom of God, that though seemingly insignificant, even at this stage of their following after Jesus, though seemingly insignificant and small, the kingdom is influential, massive, and great. Look at verse 30. It is advancing, it's growing. And he says in verse 30, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Our Lord pictures the kingdom here, notice, to a mustard seed. A mustard seed, which though not the smallest seed in the world, it was known that it was the smallest seed commonly known, the smallest seed in agriculture or farming. A mustard seed. How big was it? Some of you have seen some of these, right? It's like one to two millimeters in diameter, right? It was known for being minuscule, for its smallness, for being microscopic, comparable to a grain of sand on the seashore. Think about that. It was small, very tiny. And yet, this is his point, isn't it? It's got potential that is massive, that is great. You would never think it, but a mustard seed tree had the potential of growing over 10 feet tall, in some cases 15 to 20 feet tall. And this is our Lord's point. That though it has small beginnings and was microscopic, this little mustard seed, it grew to be huge. Massive, great, so big that it even became a home, a nest for many birds who could find shelter and shade under its branches. These animals could be cared for 
Notice that last phrase in verse 32. At least in the New American Standard Version, it says, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. It appears in caps, at least in the New American Standard. And what that signifies is that that's a reference, or at least an allusion to Old Testament Scripture. In this case, to Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 23, where it speaks about the fact that when the Messiah rules, people from every nation will find shelter and refuge under that tree of blessing. Every time I read this verse, it reminds me of Revelation 7, where it talks about the fact that there are thousands upon thousands from every nation and tribe worshiping the Lamb of God, beloved. There is a heavenly choir right now, myriads upon myriads of people, angels and elders and redeemed, and we're going to be added to that choir physically in the future to be singing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One day, beloved, our faith will be sight and we shall see a massive, great multitude and how great the kingdom of God is. I can't wait for that day. Do you long to go home? I long to go home. I'm sick and tired of this world. I'm joyful, strive to, want to live well under my trials. And I think all of us would share the heart of Paul in Philippians chapter uh, 1 that says, I long to be with the Lord, yet it is more necessary for your sake, Philippians, so I would, I'm going to be here. And as long as I'm here amongst you, I'm going to be fruitful. That is our heart, isn't it? As long as we're here, we want to bear fruit. But boy, do we just want to go to heaven now, don't we? I want to I be with the Lord. I don't care about, you know, people pontificate and, and all of that about what's going to be there in heaven and crowns and this castle and that castle. Listen, if Jesus is not there, I don't want to go there. I just want to see my Lord. I want to see Christ. I want to see him. We're going to see just how great the kingdom of God is. So you understand the parallel here from our Lord. He's making the point here about the kingdom that though it had very small beginnings like a mustard seed, it will prove to be Massive, massive. And this kingdom had humble beginnings, didn't it, beloved? Didn't it? Who would have thought that from the, that baby born in a manger, many would be redeemed before him and after him? Who would have thought that? And in fact, Jesus told his disciples later that it was necessary. It was necessary for him to die for sinners so that the kingdom would grow. John chapter 12, verse 23. Listen to the words of our Lord. John 12, 23, Jesus said to his disciples, the, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was speaking of his death. And he likens himself to a grain of wheat which falls into the earth. But when that seed sprouts, it would bear much fruit. It would reap a whole harvest of people who would be added to his kingdom. Christ, Christ had to die, beloved. He had to die for his kingdom to be in the future established in a new heavens and a new earth. And during his lifetime, this kingdom began to grow. His disciples and then other followers who came to believe in him. And then it quickly expanded right after his death to, to hundreds and then thousands after he ascended to heaven who were hearing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, one of the great themes in the book of Acts is the unstoppable word of God. We get these progress reports in Acts about the word keeps growing. The word keeps spreading. 
The kingdom of God was growing evangelistically and that people were coming to know Christ and were experiencing the new birth and then growing edificationally, being built up in Jesus Christ. And that was happening through the preaching of the word of God. Such humble beginnings, beloved. And all of those, don't forget about those in the Old Testament, right? Who in Hebrews chapter 11, some of those are in the hall of faith. Those who ultimately were redeemed by the blood of Christ who came in the future, but they lived by faith in the one true God in the Old Testament, didn't they? All of them are part of the kingdom, past, present, and future now. Some of us are part of that kingdom who are here, who turned from our sins and trusted in Christ. Oh, it began with such a, in such a humble way, didn't it? But it's massive, beloved. Listen to J.C. Ryle commenting on the growth of God's kingdom. Quote, Weakness and apparent insignificance were undoubtedly the characteristics of its beginning. How did its head and king come into the world? Speaking of Christ, he came as a feeble infant, born in a manger at Bethlehem, without riches, armies, attendants of power or power. Who were the men that the head of the church gathered around himself and appointed his apostles? They were poor and unlearned persons, fishermen, tax collectors, and men of similar occupations, to all appearance the most unlikely people to shake the world, end quote. See, it's not about our worthiness. It's not about our potential. It's about God sovereignly working through us, His church, and through His Word to grow and advance His kingdom, right? Oh, beloved, may we be not tempted to be fearful, to be anxious about the current events in our country as if, as if Satan is winning. Satan is winning. Look at everything that's taking place around us. Look at the media, all they're reporting. I mean, everything is so negative. Listen, don't drink the Kool-Aid. You know what I'm talking about? My kids laugh because I'm always using that, saying that kind of statement to them. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, kids. The thinking of the world, right? Beloved, don't drink the Kool-Aid. This is all a part of God's plan. What is ta- Do you believe in a sovereign God right now, even if you don't fully understand all that is taking place? Yes or no? Of course we do. Take heart, Christians. God is continuing to turn the world upside down through His church, His people, and through His Word. And you know what makes it so hard? It's just that issue of the media, isn't it? I mean... The media makes it so hard to not get a negative picture of Christianity and God's kingdom, right? How? Through its silence about the kingdom's massive growth. Do you ever hear about that, by the way? Headline news. This Christianity is spreading all over the world. CNN headline news. When was the last time you heard about that? You know what I mean? When was the last time that you heard this headline news just in... MSNBC, Christianity continues to grow and advance. The unstoppable word of God is doing a great work all over the world. There are more Christians in China now than ever before. When was the last time you heard the media talk like that? Ever? If you did, you dreamt it, okay? You didn't hear, you didn't, you didn't hear that from the news. This just in, the other day, such and such a person... Adulterer, effeminate, a wife beater, gave his life to Christ. Ever hear those testimonies on national television? No. 
Today in such and such a city or town, 100 souls were added to God's kingdom. People repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone in this particular city of America. Or in such and such a a country or region of the world, 5,000 souls were added to Christ this last year. We want to just report that as CNN news. Beloved, that doesn't happen. You know why? Because Satan is not going to allow that. Right? But God is sovereign over Satan. And Satan answers to God, doesn't he? And this wretched culture one day will bow the knee to Jesus, whether willingly or Jesus will break the knees of those who reject him right now and into the future, won't he? They will confess him as Lord and Savior. But Satan wants us to believe and drink the Kool-Aid, be anxious, discouraged, embarrassed, ashamed of being a Christian because of all that we see around us. So that if you're in that state of discouragement, and you're fearful, and you're scared, and you're ashamed of the gospel, listen, you as a believer will not be resolved to fulfill your mission because you are in a state of having lost heart. You've taken your eyes off of the sovereign God, the power of the gospel, the power of the word, and the powerful spirit who works in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners to awaken them from their sin to the forgiveness of sins. You've taken your eyes off of God. It's a view of God thing, isn't it, that we need to correct Oh, but some Christian in some place of the world or here in our country um, um, commits, um, uh, talks about the fact that, that abortion is committing murder. Oh, that's all over the CNN news, isn't it? You hear about that stuff. You don't hear about the progress or advance of the gospel and redeem people. But as soon as some Christian makes a stand on the fact that men were made to be men and women to be women and that marriage consists of one woman and one man, oh man, it's all over the news. All over the newspapers, this Christian church, these narrow-minded people, that's all over the news, isn't it? Oh, Satan loves this, loves this. But God is sovereign over Satan. And beloved, if we put on our thinking caps, then we will realize that Satan hasn't learned his lesson yet, that whenever the church has experienced opposition and suffering and persecution, all the more, not despite of, but because of opposition and suffering, the church advances, the kingdom grows. Take comfort in that. Do you believe it? Do you believe it, beloved? In the history of the church, God's kingdom has grown exponentially, expanded in the face of, and listen, if I could put it this way, because of persecution in the hands of a sovereign God. Because of it. Think about Christ. You have salvation today and you have the hope, the sure hope that is steadfast and will not pass away, reserved in heaven for you of seeing your Christ someday and and be in a new heavens and a new earth with him. Why? Because he suffered and died on a cross. Has the kingdom advanced because of Christ? Yes. Stephen, Acts chapter 7, remember what happens with him? He's murdered. And what happens? The church dies. Oh, the church just becomes ashamed. We don't want to die like Stephen. The church grows, beloved. The kingdom advances because of Stephen. And later, Peter. 
and Paul and Justin Martyr and John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, men who, John Wycliffe and Tyndale, who had such a burden to put the, the Bible in the hands of English speaking people. You know what happened to those guys? Strangled, burned, suffered in cells, were opposed. But after those guys, did the kingdom advance? Oh, yeah. What do we have in our hands today? English Bibles, don't we? Praise God. The kingdom advanced despite the fact that these men or because of opposition and persecution, beloved. Oh, the kingdom is unstoppable. It grows even in suffering and persecution. And that's the Lord's point. From tiny beginnings to unexplainable size. And the disciples needed to pay attention and be reminded of this later on, right? Because they were going to be rejected and persecuted and opposed. Oh, they were going to see their Lord going to the cross. Listen, if they remember this, these parables, they're going to remember that they are going to be a part of a kingdom that cannot die. That is unstoppable. Jim Elliott, you know the story of him, don't you? And four other missionaries killed in 1956 by the Waudani tribe in Ecuador. What happened there? Shockingly, two years later, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, and a friend, her friend named Rachel and, their, and, and Elizabeth's young daughter were introduced to that tribe, lived amongst them, and through this ministry, one of the catalysts that, that killed Jim Elliot and the four men, his four um, brothers in Christ, a guy by the name of Dayuman, I hope I'm pr- pronouncing it correctly, became a Christian. He helped reach his own people for Christ, and even help translate the New Testament into the language. This man, who was part of the group that killed Jim Elliot and his brothers in the Lord, got saved, and he even helped translate the New Testament into their common language. The Wadani community was transformed, beloved. What do we learn? The kingdom grows, doesn't it? The kingdom is growing. The kingdom is expanding. Let us take comfort. Let us take comfort and encouragement. Listen, don't lose heart in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. The Word of God is working, isn't it? The Word of of God is working in the hearts of people, beloved. Let us be faithful. Let us be faithful. Let me give you five ways that you can apply these truths, okay? You ready? Write these down, and they all start with a P. I call these my five P's for faithful ministry. All right? I just made that up. Five P's for faithful ministry. All of them start with, start with a P. Write them down. People, patience, process, prayer, and perspective. People, patience, process, prayer, and perspective. Remember, as we remember these wonderful truths, these profound truths, that we are here on earth ministering to people. And you and I are a person. Our mission is about touching people's lives. And people are not projects. People are not um, machines. They have feelings and emotions, don't they? They have a spirit and a body. So let us remember that as we minister to people so that we don't lord it over people, so that we don't get angry and frustrated at each other when when they don't change like we would want them to change. Remember, we're dealing with people and you are a person yourself, aren't, aren't you? Second, Therefore, be patient. Be patient. You and I are sinners. We are broken people ministering to broken people. That's what we are. 
So we need to be patient. Remember, it's a process then. It's a process. Making disciples here on this earth is a process. It's not a quick fix, is it? Not a quick fix. We need to trust in the sovereignty of God until Christ returns or will we go home to be with the Lord so that we work with people. It's a process. This all means we need grace. And that's available through prayer. Prayer. We entrust ourselves to Christ, our high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. The fact that we're dealing with people on this earth and we are people ourselves leads us to be patient, to remember that it's a process and all of this drives us to our knees, doesn't it? We need our sovereign God to work. We should be driven to prayer the more that we don't see the gospel advancing, at least from visible eyes, beloved. We need to go to the Lord in prayer. All of this leads to perspective perspective, a Christ-exalting perspective. And it is this. It's not about us. The work of the gospel on this earth is not about us. It's about Him, about Christ, and Him advancing His kingdom on this earth. Amen? That's what it's about. Let us trust in the sovereign work of God in the lives of one another and take comfort or be encouraged that though we may not see it all, God is advancing His kingdom. He's growing His kingdom. Jesus' disciples needed to remember that, and we, beloved, in our day and age, need to remember these truths so that we would be resolved to fulfill our mission and not lose heart. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that reminds us of the fact that we have a mission to accomplish. Thank you for the reminder of your son to his disciples and to the multitudes about the nature of the kingdom, that, Lord, your kingdom is unstoppable. Thank you for that. That no matter how difficult things get on this earth from our visible eyes and our own experience, oh Lord, you, your son is coming back someday to deliver the final death blow, to establish his kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth. And we look forward to that glorious day, Father. Help us to be on mission, to trust you, to trust in your sovereign work, to take comfort in the fact that you, Lord, Our salvation is protected by your mighty hand. No one can pluck us out of you, our Father's hand. Help us to remember that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.